This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Come on, you guys. A modest team. <laughs> Uh, good morning, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Um, my name is Richard Holloway, and I'm privileged to be introducing and chairing uh, the session this morning. I'm told that the tent is well-grounded and is unlikely to blow away. Um, it may start weathering during, uh, during the event, but you're quite safe, I'm told. The series of which this event is a part Turning Points for Civilization is a response to Alexander Kluger's witty cross-disciplinary work on three defining ideas in human history, capitalism, the city, and religion. And it's religion that's our topic here this morning, very broadly understood. While I remain an uncomfortable adherent of the form of religion I spent my life serving, in recent years, I've become more conscious of its stumbling blocks than of its consolations, and I want to mention two of them. The first is what Malise Riven describes as the way religion makes normal human conflict harder to deal with than it already is by transcendentalizing the issues. Let me give you one example, the status of women. The liberation of women from dominant male hierarchies has been the biggest revolution of my lifetime. It was hard fought everywhere and is far from over anywhere, but it has a particular intensity in religious institutions that see gender relations not as adventitious social constructs, but as eternally decreed divine imperatives. And even those faith groups that learn to adapt themselves to the equality of women usually try to find religious reasons for doing so rather than doing it because it's the right thing to do, which calls to mind Plato's question, is an act good because God approves it or does God approve it because it's good? It shows that the, the big questions never go away. Another scandal that's very hot in the news is religious fanaticism and its cruelties. I hope that the politics of this will come up in the discussion that follows but I've been helped in trying to understand its psychology by Adam Phillips' exposition of the phenomenon. He suggests that excessive belief is called up to stifle excessive doubt, which he labels excess as reassurance. And he goes on to say of the excessive acts that accompany excessive beliefs, wherever there are excessive acts, there are excessive fears about visibility, excessive doubts about people's attention. All of that rather negatively said, I get protective towards religion when I see it subjected to an entirely hostile exegesis. At its best, theology has always been more subtle than its caricatures suggest, and while I accept that religion has contributed and contributes today its share to the misery of humankind, it has also contributed much to the goodness and liberation of humankind. It's obviously a major factor 
in many of the convulsions of violence and disagreement that affect, that afflict the human community today, it's clearly part of the problem. What I hope we can look at is the possibility that might also be part of the solution. And we've a ridiculously short period in which to discuss these issues, but we have three profound and very winsome thinkers to help us find a direction. Rowan Williams is a former Archbishop of Canterbury who, in being liberated from that role, <laughs> returned to his previous, or one of his previous jobs as a theologian at Cambridge University, where he's also Master of Magdalen College. Angela Zito is a professor of anthropology and history of Chinese culture and religion at New York University, where she co-directs the Center for Religion and Media. And Richard Sennett is a professor of sociology and founding director of the New York Institute for the Humanities. Richard will speak first, followed by Angela, after which Rowan will pick up the pieces or gather up the fragments if you prefer the King James Version. <laughs> Richard. <clears throat> Thank you very much for coming. I hope it's true that the tent, uh, we'll hope. Um, I'm, rather than read a prepared text, uh, I want to talk to you a little more informally about something uh, that for me is very grinding and um, difficult this week as a Jew, which is the situation of uh, Palestinians, Israelis, and Jews uh, uh, during this coming, uh, during this present crisis. And I want to say to you that what I will explain to you about this is deeply um, discolored, if you like, or influenced by my family's own past in regard to this problem. And the problem is very simple. What happens when a religion turns into a state? That's what happened to, uh, to Judaism. It turned into a state in 1948. And the consequences of that is that basically the experience of faith became the experience of adherence to a state for uh, a large number of Jews. This has been, in my view, disastrous for Judaism. That is, that ours is a religion of the word. It's a religion whose cultural penumbra for thousands of years has been, uh, there it goes. Probably <laughs> so, listening. Uh, um, has been living in circumstances where we were pariahs or uh, uprooted people. How to learn with that condition of not being at home in the world but being at home in faith. That's what it, it means to be Jewish. And that situation ended in 1948. And we are, I think today, seeing the consequences of, in my view, uh, a renunciation of what makes our religion a religion. That is, how to practice faith without being at home in the world. Rowan and I have had long conversations about that, 
this is also something that is true of Christianity as well, that it began as uh, your religion, most of you are Christian, began as a way of believing without being at home. I want to say just that I'm biased about this, not only because I'm part of a group called Independent Jewish Voices, but because my family unfortunately has, has had form on this subject. After the Second World War, my great-granduncle found a, um, uh, who was able to survive and escaped and so on, and was a man of a certain amount of wealth, was able to, to found a group called Return and Confront. And the notion of this is that not only Jews, but all people who had been displaced by the Nazis should be assisted to go back and not resettle on the old terms, but confront their Hungarian, their Polish, and their German neighbors with what had happened. And that set him and our foundation uh, uh, in a crash uh, course, a, a collision course, with Zionism, whose answer to the horrors of the Second World War was to exit, to become a state. Um, it's a little hard for our, you know, there's a kind of anti there's a kind of rhetoric that Jews in particular are subject to who are not Zionists, which is self-hating Jews and so on. This couldn't apply to our family. But it's something that over the generations, and uh, we are now in a run out of money and people don't need us who did need us, but it's over the generations something we charted that as our faith became a state, that those who are independent voices like ourselves increasingly were not able to speak in the name of the faith. And that is, I think today, the only glimmer of hope in what is happening in Palestine, Israel now, is that there are many younger Jews who, I'm, I'm old, I'm the over for me soon, but there are many younger Jews who believe that this relationship of faith and state has to be broken. It has to be broken for the sake of preserving the faith, because this is a doomed state. So with that gloomy or half gloomy thought, this is, I leave you with that. This is, the, these films of Alexander Kluge are amazing. The one on religion I, goes too fast for me. But it's, it's an amazing film because it's looking at the ways in which religion can be a self-destructive practice in Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. And it was very rel resonant for me when I saw it, because I think we, for us as Jews, that's the position we're in now. We're at a moment where a practice, which is making faith into a state, can prove self-destructive. Thank you very much.
Good morning. The tent is holding. Um, what kinds of persons are we? I don't mean are we good or happy or evil or despairing. I mean what styles of being human itself do we favor in a deeper and more systemic sense? And who are we willing to allow to join us in our modern house of humanity that we've slowly built since the European Middle Ages? I always think of this older era in a kind of set of, I don't know, maybe a filmic cliches, you know, the uh, barbaric crusades, the love of the supernatural masked as the metaphysics of the great chain of being, and a deep-seated sense of the essential human blood hierarchy of aristocracy. But what do we think of ourselves as human beings now after the Enlightenment has cast an unforgiving glare on these older and traditional notions, notions deeply upheld at one point or another by the monotheisms, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, that have been the blood in the veins of Mediterranean civilizations for 2,000 years. Aren't we now held together by public commitments of tolerance? That's no more crusades. Aren't we held together by a sense of knowledge that is carefully divided between natural science and true faith? No more witch hunts. And of devotion to inclusive democratic ideals, preserving monarchies only as amusing TV and tabloid fodder. Forgive me, I'm American. <laughs> History provides us with, it seems, in fact, nothing but tales of change. In fact, we moderns are devoted to the idea of change itself, especially about ourselves. Modern people make something of themselves. They immigrate, they work hard, they forge new circumstances and new selves. Modern people can change. How are our religious legacies coping, in fact, with this sense of modernity. Living with our formal religious legacies has meant living with their contradictions and their scandals, as Richard put it in his introduction. Uh, a scandal implies great disappointment, and great disappointment implies great investment. Therefore, if we are ever scandalized about our religious life, it only means that it is very, very meaningful to us. Right. So my scandal today, and there are many to choose from, since against all odds we do continue to expect a lot from religion, is the American prison system, which does have something to do with my state. Um, the most recent figures, and I took them from the BBC as an outsider, uh, put the American amazing amount of people incarcerated. We, we hold the record in the world of sheer numbers of people in prison. Um, is 737 people per 100,000 for a total of 2.2 million people in prison. Next in sheer numbers is China, obviously. <laughs> they have the most people in the world. However, their rate is only 118 per 100,000. Everyone pales in, in, in comparison to the, to the criminally inclined Americans. Other significant things about the U.S. prison population, it is overwhelmingly male. Uh, men are 90%. Uh, it is young. These are young men in their 20s and 30s. People in prison are less educated. It is highly racialized. In 2010, black men were incarcerated at a rate of 3,000 per 100,000 residents. White men were incarcerated at only 460 per 100,000. Now, worse economic and social circumstances do contribute something of more opportunity and temptation for crime. But in fact, it is really very much a matter of entrenched racial bias in enforcement and sentencing. White people are quite capable of the crime. They just do not, as they say, do the time. When it comes to punishment, the U.S. also leads the world in sheer numbers of maximum security facilities and in the hours it confines people in solitary. 
It is a shameful business. And increasingly, as private companies are given contracts to run the system, literally a matter of being in the punishment business for profit. The US penal system is broken, economically, socially, and above all, ethically. Taking it up through the lens of religion allows us to honor religion as paradoxically something that is part of culture, even while it tries to situate us as a thoughtful remove, providing us with those things called principles, places from which we can reflect upon and criticize religion as culture and the culture that contains religion. This is the better side of transcendentalizing. Mm. Um, so if we look at prison problems from the inside out, as it were, connected inevitably as we are by the very walls that separate us from the inmates, let's think about the religious lives of people in prisons. Statistics from the Federal Bureau of Prisons are hard to come by, even in a democratic place. But an old batch from 1997 yields that 99.8% of prisoners in inside give some form of religious affiliation. Only 0.2% admitted to atheism. Uh, perhaps prisons are felt to be as violent and dangerous as foxholes. Uh, but it's also an embarrassing statistic to our conservative Christian politicians who imagine in their ideal world that jails would be filled with the godless rather than with the Christians. Unsurprisingly, if we add up all the varieties of Protestants, with the Catholics, Christians vastly outnumber everyone else. But I'd like to also add in the Muslim and Buddhist populations, which would give us 89.5%. I am after that figure because it reflects the percentage of people in the system who are identified with religions that are driven by theologies of conversion. These theologies of conversion are committed to a view of human being that features its capacity to change. So not only are the vast number of incarcerated Americans religiously identified, they identify with religions whose practices emphasize transformational capacities, which makes them quite modern. Sadly, the system within which they are caught does not agree. America has abandoned reform for punishment, even as Christian-driven discourses occupy more and more political space in terms of reasons for legislation, we seem to have completely left behind more progressive versions of Christianity that were foundational to our early penal system. The optimistic vision, where the optimistic vision of Quakers, who built the first modern penitentiaries, were sure that criminals were capable of internal conversion to virtue and honesty, we in the state seem to be undergoing a reversion to our earliest Puritan Calvinist forefathers, who were far less forgiving. Our prisons are not committed to fostering change. Instead, they are perversely dedicated to shaming the incarcerated intensely and forcing deep identification of them with their crimes, which is, in a sense, only one version of themselves. Right? Um, I am leaving aside the issues of, 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 of guilt and innocence. Um, plenty of innocent people are locked up, but believe me, Matt, the mass of people inside prisons that I've met are, are indeed guilty of some terrible things. Religious organizations send in their chaplains and their imams and their priests. But most people have, uh, but, but their report backs dwell a lot on suspicions of who tends to religious extremism inside. Much effort is expended, in short, in erasing the incarcerated from social memory unless it is to sponsor further punitive legislation. In other words, inmates could be understood to have more progressive religious resources available to them than those that are availed by their jailers. 
So you might by now think, ah, but surely the scandal rests upon a lack of Christian forgiveness. This is a view that may move some people in our audience here, but believe me, it will do nothing with legislature in the United States. Forgiveness also places the initiative in the hands of those who are doing the judging. It really does not address the agency or the, per the, the personhood of the incarcerated criminal. Forgiveness, on the contrary, does create a hierarchy of difference. It does the opposite in a sense. Is not the forgiver always superior? So that's why I mentioned that Christians and Muslims and Buddhists, that 89.5%, share something among themselves I find more interesting and more modern. In theological possibilities for being a person, this is belief in the capacity of the wholesale possibility of change for the self. As philosopher Richard Rorty put it, we have come to see that the only lessons of either history or anthropology is our extraordinary malleability. Now, certain religions have long understood this. The great wave of Pentecostalism in African, Africa and Latin America, the growing interest in more personally demanding forms of Islam, the slow infusion of the Buddhist Dharma into the West are current manifestations of its power. The scandal vis-a-vis -vis theologies of conversion is one of forgetting and wasting a precious resource. It's the kind of scandal that haunts our stewardship of the environment, forgetting and wasting precious resources. The scandal lies in concentrating upon our differences instead of our commonalities to the point where whole swaths of a population are abandoned to expectations of eternal criminality. We would say they are even hailed by social expectations of that role when in fact we have the religious resources to find another way. They are abandoned as incorrigible, as unchanging, which makes them, in the terms I have introduced, not even modern. It excludes them from the house of modern humanity. I taught college courses in the anthropology and history of religions for a few years inside two women's prisons in New York City, uh, in New York State and in New York City. Now, the scene of teaching is both similar and different from the scene of some of the women's religious life inside. Both our classroom and Bible study groups or group meditations share a, a chance to form voluntary communities inside the forced and often unpleasant and even sometimes quite dangerous closeness, the human closeness of a prison. Um, but besides this important sense of community, commitment to college and commitment to religious studies provided a way as well of exerting personal control over time in a very small way. Both called for participation in the world of discipline in which prisoners found themselves immersed. This personal commitment to the discipline of college or the discipline of being part of religious life inside, being on time, getting your work done, reaching goals of competence, is based in this modern idea that people are more a matter of becoming rather than being, that they can change. So breaching the wall, going inside a prison to teach, was more than a symbolic crossing over this institutional and legal divide. It allowed me to spend time with my students and create with them a tiny slice of common reality that we could share, which brought about change for us both. So the commitment to human transformation is shared between certain religious theologies and critical educational practice. And this should not surprise any of us who know their common history and roots. But the scandal is that we have forgotten. So I look forward to our discussion later. Thank you. Thank you. I want to begin with a picture that comes from a study by Caroline Humphreys of shamanism in primitive cultures. 
primitive in inverted commas, take for granted. She describes a scene where the local holy man, the shaman, steps forward in a context of profound community conflict, draws a circle around herself, and summons the protagonists of the conflict inside the circle with stern and menacing gestures. They are not to leave that circle until the conflict has been resolved. And that's, to me, a very vivid picture of one of the ways in which reference to the holy or the sacred can work. It doesn't have to. And sometimes, as we've already heard, it can be not just a failure, but a real contributor to the conflict that underlies. But it's a picture of religious language, practice, reference to the holy as something which crystallizes what Andrew just wonderfully called that slice of common reality. Here is a space which is not owned by this person or that, by this interest or that, this agenda or that. Here is a space which is in principle accessible to everybody and a place where a whole lot of relationships that have nothing to do with the ordinary struggles of power and advantage can be brought into the foreground. To put it rather uh, epigrammatically, this is a place where your only job is to be human. And there aren't very many places like that in most human cultures, which is one of the things that is going on in religious practice. The affirmation of a place where all you've got to do is be human. I talked about the relationships that this takes for granted. So often we work on understandings of relationships and systems of relationships, which are about the ways in which we recognize one another, admit one another as admissible, as recognizable, as those others who've jumped through the hoops that we require. And there are moments where it is essential that we're reminded of what I'll call inaccessible relations between people. What binds us to one another in ways that are just not accessible to damage, alteration, renegotiation. Art, of course, when it's doing its job, does exa exactly the same. It connects us with those inaccessible levels of relatedness that otherwise we ignore or overlay or distort. And that, to my mind, has something to do with the way in which so many religions have built into their DNA, so to speak, a universalist agenda. There is something about what is being spoken of here which is not simply of local or partisan interest. There is something about the quality of being human that is under negotiation here, something about a vision of human, it's a difficult word, but let's use it, inclusivity. That's to say, reference to the holy, reference to the sacred, allows me to say of every other partner in the human world, there is something about them that has to be taken seriously and that cannot be negotiated out of existence. Something about them which has a claim upon me, something about them which is not about my interest or my agenda. A religious view of another human being begins, you might say, with the recognition, this is not my property. Now, 
you don't need to remind me, that religions have pretty universally tolerated any number of distortions and denials of this, not least in their attitudes to slavery. But before we get too pompous about this, it's perhaps worth remembering that in the 18th century, it was a particular kind of enlightenment science that began to define racial hierarchies in a new way that cemented rather than undermining slavery. And it was the rather primitive and simple-minded universalism of some religious people that pushed back most effectively against it. It's worth remembering that the Enlightenment is no more innocent than religion in this respect, as in others. A space where all we've got to do is be human. A space where we can connect in some way with those relations that are normally inaccessible to us or hidden from us, and that we'd often like to forget because they put us on a sort of equality. They put us together in ways we haven't chosen and can't easily organize. And that, in the context we've heard about already this morning, intercommunal, penal, that is a precious moment of sheer difference, sheer social difference. Here is something which is not owned by whatever prevailing patterns of power exist. It's why, to take another pragmatic example fresh in my own mind, it's why in some deeply conflicted situations, like South Sudan, where I was 10 days ago, the only possible space for discussing what a just society might look like when factionalism and tribalism have been set aside only possible space is the one defined by the churches and other faith communities in South Sudan. One last point about the principle of religion, and it's a paradox, unsurprisingly. The paradox which Richard right at the start drew our attention to, one of the awful things that religious practice does is to transcendentalize issues, to promote to absolute primary metaphysical status a number of questions which are not necessarily of that kind of earth-shattering, lasting importance. But the paradox is this. A religion which is deeply and consistently committed to the utter otherness, transcendence, and liberty of the holy, the freedom of God, as you might say in a Judeo-Christian or Muslim context, the more a religion is committed to that picture of the otherness of God, the less it ought to be anxious about defending itself. The problem so many religions have is, as I've sometimes put it, the attitude that treats God as a kind of senile millionaire who needs protection from his better self. Institutions rally round to stop him being as generous as he wants to be with what is his. They surround him with all kinds of protective mechanisms because, poor thing, he can't be left to himself. He's not safe on his own. That, of course, is precisely the um, bizarre picture which Philip Pullman, unforgettably, characterizes in his Dark Materials. That is Pullman's divinity, in a sense. But a religious tradition which is serious about what it's saying should be one in which it's possible to be somewhat more relaxed about defending your position, your status, your power, whatever, simply because 
your failure or your weakness doesn't necessarily mean God's loss. The divine is there, inaccessible, non-negotiable, just like the things that bind us to one another in our humanity. And when religion is working creatively, fully, constructively in that mode, that's the point, I think, at which it most manifestly becomes part of the solution rather than the problem. Um, Richard, um, something that Hannah Arendt wrote um, years ago in one of her <coughs> essays, and she talked about the beauty of the Jewish people when, in a sense, they belonged nowhere and therefore everywhere. And when they, when they got, as it were, Israel back, they became just like the rest of us. Um, I wondered if you weren't being a bit tougher on your own people, because we're all pretty... All states are pretty foul and corrupt when they're uh, defending their own interests. And hasn't all that's happened to Israel, which is doing the usual ugly things that states do, it's yes. simply become like the rest of us? That's true. Uh, that's true. Uh, I think the problem is this, that the rebound on that is to think of this as a Jewish state, means that the, the rebound from what the state does, which is awful, is, and as we're seeing in the last couple of weeks, an increase in anti-Semitic uh, activity in Europe, states, which is aimed at the religion. And um, it would be like saying that, um, I, I don't know, you know, if, if, uh, if uh, I don't know, this isn't a good analogy. My, my worry about this is that the religion has to be protected from the state. And I, I wouldn't see this as a bucolic situation. Uh, that's, uh, it's, uh, that's an odd word that Hannah Arendt used. But uh, this, ours, is a religion that could live stateless for thousands of years in the face of prejudice, discrimination, and survive. And now, my worry is that a state religion uh, means that the uh, attacks on uh, Jewish people for being Jewish uh, will increase. So that's why I think the movements like Independent Jewish Voices are so strong in their criticism of the Israeli state, which, as you say, is acting just like a, it's like a very bad state, but it's acting like a state, is that the knock-on effects are something that don't have to do anything with the preservation of that state. Can I say one other thing about this? If I were an Israeli, I would want to join up the dots between Hamas and ISIS. Someday, those, I'd want mm. to join them up mentally, mm. just in terms of statecraft, to mobilize your enemies and drive them further and further mm. to extremism. Not so smart. So this is something that, I, I mean, the period we're in now is, uh, that's, that's what worries me when those dots get 
chilled up. To, to keep that thought going, Rowan, because in a sense the ideology of ISIS, not sure what it's calling itself, is weak. It is precisely to make religion the state. Yes, right. Yes. Uh, and that, how, are we get, how are we dealing with that? Of course, what, what it's doing is in effect to to undermine the, the whole notion of a religion that is as something which is not the political space. Mm. This is precisely the self-defensive space. This is, this is the practice of rivalry, violence, etc., which ideally the religious reference ought to be springing us out of. That's, mm. that's the awfulness of it. And the irony, I think, is that just as there are aspects of Israeli policy which are making Jews less safe so the defense of Islam in certain ways undermines a whole practice and identity and integrity right. in Islam mm -hmm. Mm. in ways which seem to suggest that the future, and this is a horrible prospect, the future belongs to pseudo-religions. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, that's very alarming. What's what do you mean by a pseudo-religion? By pseudo-religions, I mean systems of thought and practice and speech which clothe naked violence and power precisely with transcendent mm. authority. Mm. The way in which religion has always corrupted mm. itself. Mm. More of the same coming, I think. Mm. But if I can go back for just a moment to Richard's point, what I think is most taxing, most difficult for many people looking on this nightmare conflict in Gaza is how you even begin to unpick two issues which are, for all sorts of obvious reasons, close together. You want a state in which it is safe to be Jewish. Mm. That's, you know, that's part of Israel's rationale. And Lord knows that, you know, that's not a trivial request. Mm. It's, a, it's a serious imperative need. Does that automatically mean you need a Jewish state? And that's, that's, the, you know, yeah. right, but no, that's the tension no, within that, which yeah, it seems yeah, Israel yeah, lives. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. It, it would seem to be a more general goal for other states that they should provide places where it is not only safe to be Jewish, but safe to be several other kinds mm. of religions as well. You know. mm. the, 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 the religion in the state, <coughs> I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's, the culture wars that you have there are, are in a sense defined by uh, religious ideologies, aren't they? I mean, and w what you said about the, the, the kind of heavy punishment ethic of the very right-wing conservative, yes. Yes. Um, Christian with, with, with the gun above the windscreen and all. It's very, we're very self-righteous about that in Britain, especially in oh, Scotland. Yes. We don't do guns in Scotland. I mean, it's sort of, um, so where, where, where this is that This makes me going? happy to be here. Is that, is, that, is that kind of evolving, being challenged? What's happening to the Tea Party kind of element in American politics at the moment? Is it quieter? It's, it's, uh, it's localized. Oh. And... Uh, I think that, that, that it's, it's become, we have, a, we have a, a, great, a great difference between politics at the national level and politics locally. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's become clear, I think, to the Christian-driven Republican right that they cannot win the, the presidency. You know? um, but they can absolutely win locally and, and organize locally. Mm -hmm. So it, it's become more of a guerrilla movement in that sense. In that, in that sense, mm. this has something in common with an ISIS issue, doesn't mm. it? Do, do, this is, this is, you know, it's 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 religiously driven ideological work that resonates so deeply with our inner heart, and and it moves people, 
and mm. uh, it doesn't seem to move them at the national level, but it sure moves them locally. Mm. And, and since the state, this politics in the states is built from locally, that's how you control Congress, you can, you can hem in do, do you know, mm. the national political agenda by filling up from the bottom, right? From the bottom, you know? Richard, do you want a quick comment on that and then we'll go to questions? No, 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 yeah. so yeah. yeah. Can we have, um, like we've, we've only got about 10 minutes. This is going to be followed um, by a session with the First <laughs> Minister and there's another big eager crowd waiting to come in. So, so when we Aren't go out... the same? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll not get into the religious dimension of that. But if, if, you'll, if, you'll let us, if you'll let us get out, our speakers will linger in the signing tent if you want to uh, come and ask them a question. But can I see... that there, There's a, a hand there. Thank you. And, and there's one there. Yeah. Um, anyone over here? Hello. Okay. Yeah, and um, up there. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Angela Zito talked about the prisons being in the uh, punishment business. Now, that to me implies that it has some sort of deterrent effect, but that obviously doesn't happen because there are so many repeat offenders. So it's more about being in the protection business, protection of the rest of society. Um, so, but why do we need to do that? And that seems to be because the people, the criminals, aren't being helped, aren't being treated. And so the question then is, why? And what, what we know now <coughs> is that the majority of people in prisons yeah. have mental health issues. Yes. Now, I mean yes. mental health issues in yes. the broadest sense. Yes. Personality disorders, yeah. narcissistic, antisocial personality disorder, all these personality disorders. The problem there is that treating these is very intensive, so it doesn't happen. So, and, and then this extends to religion, because the, problem, the biggest problem with religion is the abuse of religion. And it's mostly by people with personality disorders. So we haven't got a lot of time. Could you come to a question? Yes. So, yeah. right, the, the question is, what do we do about, you know, recognizing why these abuses of religion happen and what we can do about that? Hmm. Uh, I, 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 would, I would rather myself, I, I think maybe... I'm sitting here between two men of the cloth. Um, they might address that issue more directly, but I would address the issue of mental health and prisons. Mm. My, my country is famous for its terrible lack of national health care, health care in general. Uh, it's a pay-as-you-go system virtually, or it's tied to your job, which is becoming increasingly more difficult as well. Mm. Um, and therefore, uh, we have, we have as, as our mental health care has deteriorated, our prison system has grown. And this is something I didn't mention, but it's absolutely a question of warehousing people who mm. could absolutely be cared for in another fashion, but letting them go till they fall off a cliff and then what they do becomes offensively called a crime, you know, and then you can put them over there, you sort of file them in that folder. So these are, these are, these are deeply systemic issues, mm. um, and, and you are right. And they are issues of abuse. They are, they are abuse and they are issues of forgetting, of, of, of letting go, right, of, of, of parts of our populations that we should not let go. And it's happening here too mm -hmm. and being privatised. Yep. Yes, sir. I, I, I wonder whether I may ask uh, Lord Williams, uh, and I ask the question as a church warden and former church treasurer in, in the Diocese of Southwark, what I really would like to ask Lord Williams is, what does he see as the core function of the parish church nowadays, if indeed it has a core function? I think it does have a core function, and I think that core function is precisely to be 
a place which stands for something bigger than the agenda of any Father group man, around. The woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which allows itself both literally, materially, and in terms of the services and connections it offers, to be a place that is everybody's rather than just one particular group's uh, preserve. It does that, of course, by pursuing and performing its fundamental rationale, which is to be a place where people assemble and worship. But out of that flows its capacity to, to hold and welcome different groups who want to find themselves and one another in a larger context. I could, I could say more, but I think that's where it, where it sits. And it's worth watching Rev on television, isn't it? Exactly. Makes that point. Yes, yes, yeah. The I actually meant the woman next to you, but maybe, yeah. 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 What's the... Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, carry on. Uh, yeah, just carry on, sir. It's all right. The, you talked a lot about modernity as being a, a condition of, of religion nowadays or a, a factor that it feeds into religion nowadays. Does the factor in modernity of increased uh, perseverance of identity uh, not being um, subsumed to larger f social forces, does this, uh, this, I this emphasis on an identity, an, an individual identity, which is in religion nowadays the spiritual sort of more um, closely identified form, and is the, is the religious conflict of the world today um, a function of this, this, the conflict between uh, identity and a structure, a religious structure, or is it a more individual yeah. form of, of the thought? This is a that. wonderful yeah. question. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think probably the most difficult of all tests of faith is to believe without thereby gaining an identity. I think that's the, the to me, that's the acid test of faith, to believe in something or uh, forces outside yourself without therefore saying, and this is who I am. So it's a very profound issue. Rowan? Just very briefly, I think that has something to do with the answer to the question of how we identify the sources of religious abuse and the abuse of religion. Understanding faith as something which is not about cementing or reinforcing the walls of your own security over against, but as something which connects you in unpredictable and unmanageable ways. That, I think, is part of, part of the answer. And that, I think, means we have to think very hard about how religious people are formed in practice. Mm -hmm. What, I'll be blunt, you know, what kinds of meditative and prayerful practice are actually taught to people in order to enable them to mature in faith mm -hmm. and in their perspective. And I think you, you'd have something to say about this. From well, I, I, I think that's a wonderful question as well. And um, because there's no, there's no doubt that in, in, our, in, our, in our European American, I mean, in, in, a kind of, in a kind of advanced capitalist consumer society, that, that the, 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 the incitement of a sense of self as 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 very um, it's, it's somewhat selfish. It's it's about you know bringing up uh, a sense of the self that that is going to earn and going to get ahead and going to have the money to consume to keep the engine going right. So so how is it that uh, you know religion which 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 we could mitigate this 
could mitigate this wholesale isolationism, right, of the possessive individual, how can that be brought to bear? And how can it be brought to bear in ways that, you know, um, uh, Rowan was mentioning, I, or, or that Richard mentions, rather than be brought to bear in forms of new extreme community, do, you know, which, which is a kind of negation of the, and, and that is how many, many, you know, fundamentalist Christian communities that I'm familiar with more in the States, this is their criticism of, of that kind of person that I was describing. You know, they want to mitigate that, but their, their prescription for that is not, not perhaps what you would be after or what I would be after. Uh, so. Yes, thank you. Hello. Thank you for a very interesting talk. Um, with huge respect to the panel and the topics you've chosen to speak about, I was a little bit surprised in a week where we opened the papers to find thousands of Christians being slaughtered on a mountaintop um, that we haven't sort of confronted that a little more. Could you say anything about, about the, religious, the, the role of religion in conflicts at the moment and what we in the West, whether it's leaders or believers, can do? We we kind of been touching on it maybe in a meta way, but Rowan, I mean it is terrible, and 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 that um, lovely parish priest in in Iraq, um, uh, who's been addressing this and the horrors of it. Can you speak to that? Are you? It, it's a hideous situation, and unfortunately an entirely predictable one. It's been a trajectory going forward for the last ten years at least in the whole of the Middle East, the um, disempowering exclusion and virtual expulsion of religious minorities in general, but Christian minorities in particular, from any number of um, societies there. And it's, it's something which we ought to be profoundly concerned about. And the problem is, I think, that the kind of society in which minorities of all kinds, including Christian ones, are going to be secure is not the kind of society that is being created in most Middle Eastern environments at the moment. The assumption that a little bit of um, tidy surgical military action would create Western-style democracy in the Middle East mm. is a, a terrible illusion. As it is, we're faced with a choice between a number of very unpalatable alternatives. I think that the humanitarian and protective steps currently being taken are more or less unavoidable if we're not to see a complete genocidal bloodbath there. I hope that we do not repeat the mistakes of 10 years ago and convert that into another pseudo-crusading mm. mm. program. Uh, and yes, that, yes, you know, exactly. I really feel for our politicians here because India, I think yes. the, yeah. the yes. choices are almost all of them profoundly unpalatable and yeah. none of them have guarantees of success. Yeah, yeah. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry we have to bring it to a close. The First Minister will be champing at the bit in, in the author's Europe. But please uh, don't go before letting me thank um, our speakers. We've only, only been able to touch the surface of these profound issues, um, uh, but we've been given directions by these three extremely wise and beguiling people. So please, on your behalf, let me thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.